Welcome to Sports Mad Res's This Week in Review podcast, where we highlight the recent news in sports medicine research. So as a follow-up to last week's discussion, we've invited three of our other writers to join Steve and I in our discussion about how the current pandemic is affecting sports medicine research. So if we could kind of go around again like we did previously to do some introductions. Danielle, would you like to get us started? Sure. Uh, my name is Danielle Torp. I'm a third-year doctoral student at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte. Uh, my primary research is around uh, rehabilitation for musculoskeletal injuries of the lower extremity uh, and using uh, motor learning theories to target those injuries. Great. Alex? Sure. Uh, my name is Alex DeYoung. I'm a third-year PhD student at the University of Virginia in the Exercise and Sport Injury Lab. Um, and my research is primarily focused around running-related injuries, how we can measure them with wearable sensors, and how we can intervene with some interactive gait training interventions. Then I'm Lana Lemke, also a third-year doctoral student at the University of Georgia in the UGA Concussion Research Lab and also Biomechanics Lab. Um, focuses on concussion research, but how we kind of move differently or sensory neuromuscular deficits after the injury that might be leading us to these heightened musculoskeletal injuries. And to just give people kind of a framework for how the pandemic currently is, could you guys briefly touch on how, where, what's the state of your research and your dissertations? Yeah, so I can start. Um, I had just started collecting participants for my dissertation. Uh, I think I started two individuals and it would say uh, about four weeks study. So we just kind of stopped there. We figured two people at the early stages would be better to cut off at that point. So right now we are um, just trying to fine tune our, our methodology and make sure everything we want to do is, is standard. Um, but right now we're just holding off. So luckily I don't have kind of a half data set right now. So I think that's the benefit. Um, and then just kind of monitoring when we're going to be allowed to get back in the lab and see if that pushes my timeline at all. But right now I'm on schedule. Um, every kind of month that goes by, we'll see how that schedule changes. But yeah. Your, your study design is that, it sounds like it's an interventional. Correct. Yeah. So it's a uh, baseline testing and then uh, a two week intervention and then a one week follow up. So. Yeah, I'm in a very similar boat. I had just started my intervention study. Um, we had a couple of people that were about three weeks into a four week intervention. Um, luckily, mine was sensor based. So we missed some of the key follow up outcomes. Uh, that we were looking at, but we did get all the sensor-based outcomes um, just because everyone was still in the local area and could repeat some of the baseline measures with the sensors. Um, I am pretty lucky that I had some data pre-collected before all of this happened. So at this stage, I'm just kind of going through older data sets, uh, doing some analyses there, and then playing the waiting game just like Danielle. So we're, I think we're all in a little bit of a holding pattern here, but hoping to be back on track soon. Yeah, it's about the same boat on my end. Um, I was fortunate enough to get started in the fall, so I've got a few subjects in the books. Um, but the challenge is clinical time points, um, matching controls to them, 
uh, we definitely lost a couple to attrition or for the in uh, different time points between groups. So um, it's definitely been challenging, and yeah, it's a hold until further notice. So we may have to start thinking about pivoting to different dissertation topics or taking an extended period of time to ensure the project is done appropriately. And Landon, as you kind of think about potential needs to change topics, how does that kind of, do you see that potentially affecting your research down the road? Yeah, I think I can definitely impact. I think a lot of us use our dissertations, at least, at least me personally, as kind of a springboard for that early career where if that anything gives you strong foundational data to bounce off and go for the next bigger project or more, more multimodal or whatever the topic is, um, so that can definitely hamper that a bit. You guys have um, kind of pre-existing data. I know Alex said a little bit that you have at least something to work on during this time. Or what are you, how are you guys utilizing your time right now? <laughs> Lots of writing. Yeah. <laughs> so old stuff that you're trying to get out or kind of stuff yeah, just filling in like lit reviews and things like that for your dissertations. Um, I can start. It's a little bit of both for me. So I really worked um, when this first happened on my lit review just to kind of get that finalized and then started uh, fleshing out some of the methodology for my different dissertation components um, and then writing up the introduction for each of those papers as well. Um, for one of the studies, we did have that pre-collected data. So um, have a lot of data to sift through since we're using uh, running wearable sensors, so hundreds of thousands of data points to kind of go through. So it is nice to be able to sit on those data a little bit longer and really think through some of the analyses that we can do. Um, so that's primarily how I've been spending my time. But yeah, just lots of writing, trying to catch up on things that typically would be done during the summer, but just got uh, pushed forward a little bit quicker. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm in the same boat where we've been fortunate enough to have a lot of different data sets or different projects over the years um, where it's, okay, we'll work on it during the summer. We'll do a lot of the writing during the summer, that kind of thing. But this is like summer got moved up and extended for an unknown period of time. So it's uh, unfortunate not actively collecting data, but there's still plenty to be done. And that's what's trying to find that balance of work-life balance from home, but continue working on that and being productive in the possible circumstances. I'm pretty much doing the exact same as uh, Alex and Landon, writing on old data sets, uh, working on some dissertation sections. Um, but I also teach. I'm a teaching assistant, so I've had to transition my course online. So that's been a whole <laughs> – it was a lab, so trying to move the lab online has just been uh, very interesting. But we're almost done with that, so then I can kind of get geared back up towards writing. And how's the current situation also affecting, you know, your travel and conference attendance and meetings and things like that? Like, I know it's already impacted ACSM. And Alex, I think I heard Virginia is tra prohibiting travel through June. So regardless of what NATA decides, that kind of impacts that. Yeah, that's right. They extended the travel ban. But yeah, uh, Virginia kind of did a travel ban, so we're not going to be able to present at NATA. We kind of already had to withdraw the abstracts that got accepted. Um, I unfortunately also got a symposium accepted with uh, Chris Napier from, um, from Canada, and Canada's not allowed to travel into the U.S. at this time. So um, 
it's it's a bummer, definitely. I'm I'm hoping for some virtual opportunities to be able to share some of the work that we've been doing, um, some of the findings in that way. But yeah, at this point, just kind of on a holding pattern in that respect, also. Yeah, it's definitely impacted conferences. Um, NATA, for example, Paris, the International Consensus on Concussions Board, that one's been canceled or postponed until further notice, um, which is going to be in October. So just a lot of uh, challenges with that, which is also, I think, critical in our stage of that third year, even fourth year. Oh, the last year of the PhD, we were trying to kind of network a little bit more and start figuring out a little bit more of that, the path you want to go down. So it's definitely impacted that. Um, even with NATA being in our back door of Georgia, um, I don't know if we'll be allowed to even go to it. And if so, I don't know if I would even feel comfortable going to it. So it just depends on how this all evolves in the next month or two. Yeah, I find it challenging to uh, for that to be hosted, to be quite honest, with large numbers. Um, plus, with all the situations that you just presented of, you know, having to uh, pull your, you know, retract your stuff. So there's going to be quite a lot of that going around. So a lot of windows. Um, so it's going to be challenging. I mean, we'll see what happens. And I know they have a very good committee that works on that stuff, but. It's just, uh, it's a tough thing to plan around all of this, for sure. So the District 3 uh, Regional Conference, MATA, was going to be held in mid-May here in Charlotte. And they have canceled the in-person, but they still want all the presenters to provide a virtual presentation that they can post. Um, and the members can watch and get e uh, CEUs for them. So maybe if that's what... Uh, the NATA is kind of thinking of posting, you know, symposiums and presentations online so that we can still get that content. Um, Cause I think it's important to share that information, but it'll be interesting. I know Charlotte, I don't think we have travel restrictions at the moment. Um, I know I just got approved for summer travel funding. So I think in their mind, they're thinking it's still going to happen, but um, yeah, we'll see as that progresses. We'll talk a little bit about kind of long-term implications of this uh, in a few minutes, but I was kind of wondering, you know, from your perspectives, especially as people who are currently collecting data for um, projects and that should be building blocks, as you kind of pointed out, for where you go with your career as a research line, what are kind of the short-term concerns that the pandemic has kind of introduced uh, to how you're doing your research and your academic studies. Yeah, I think in the short term, the real fear is just about how dissertation is going to go. Are we going to be able to finish on time? Is it going to take an extension to actually complete data collection? Um, and something that Landon and I have been talking about a little bit is kind of um, what subjects perspectives are going to be in participating in human subjects research, which I think is something that we should be a little bit cognizant of. Um, Kind of going forward, um, I think that working with a running related injury population, I might actually see an increase in the number of subjects that want to participate or that are actually developing running related injuries. That's the primary form of exercise at the moment. Um, but I think it's just going to be interesting to see kind of the shift around attitudes towards human subjects research, being able to get enough subjects to actually um, kind of hang our hat on the data that we're collecting and really being able to kind of finish in our, in our timeline. Um, I think that's a kind of a, a global concern. Yeah, I think another point with all this too is I think we're going to see higher number of attrition reporting or we should probably see a attrition reporting in studies. 
Uh, we might see some older data sets come out of the woodworks, which is probably a good thing. Those need to get out anyways, but um, I think it'll be challenging. I think authors will just need to be very clear. So one, uh, reviewers know what kind of happened, why the attrition is there, but two, so researchers know that it was due to COVID-related uh, incidences and um, that could impact the research, but um, at least acknowledge that is what was going on. I know we've had discussions about um, if push comes to shove and we do have to kind of change the dissertation topic, um, thinking about in this moment, what is important in healthcare and specifically sports related healthcare when there are no sports, right? Um, but athletic trainers and physical therapists, they still have patients and they still have athletes to work with that have injuries that aren't resolved. Um, so we've been trying to, you know, put it on the on the agenda just to think about what's going to be important in the next couple of years if um, all the telemedicine stuff has been rolling out. And so is that going to gain traction and is that going to be the new norm? Um, and is that where our research efforts should start going towards? So uh, kind of an interesting, I know that's a longer term issue, but in the short term, that's what we have to think about for our dissertations if we plan on graduating in this four year timeline. So Extensions have already been talked about. I know our department chairs and everything have been talking about funding and all of that. So um, kind of reassuring that higher ups are thinking about us doctoral students and maintaining us and making sure we get the, you know, the right uh, experience that we're here to get. So. I'd be curious how IRB is going to kind of modify or change things as well, you know, to protect yourselves and, and the, the subject. So, you know, that'll be interesting to see if there's any needed modifications in the protocols, but also, you know, kind of what Landon brought up about this is, you know, our subjects gonna be reluctant to be subjects, you know, in the kind of fear, because, you know, we're all gonna have this, I think, hesitation when we go back to normal society of like, hey, we could go back. And people are, you know, you, I think, it's been proposed that the handshake is going to be a thing of the past um, and things like this, like things that was just normal. You know, so I think our behavior is definitely going to, we're going to be walking on eggshells at first about, mm, can I get this close to you? Is this okay? And, you know, um, and rightfully so. So I think it's going to affect a lot of different things uh, kind of moving forward. So trying to be as proactive and think about these things ahead of time is definitely important, especially from, your perspectives. Right. And even I feel like as restrictions start to lift, I still think that there's going to be a delay in when we can actually begin kind of human subjects research um, and any kind of testing with the IRB. Um, originally, when when um, all the changes were kind of starting to take effect, the IRB was giving us a checklist of things that we had to have subjects fill out. So like, have you traveled recently? Have you come into contact? Have you shown any of these symptoms? I'm going to be interested to see if there's some sort of um, kind of checklist or something that we have to go through with subjects before we can even begin that kind of research again um, with our in-person subjects. It'll be interesting. Alex, you also kind of hinted at something that um, Nikki brought up last week, which was this idea of, you know, when we do start collecting data, for example, in runners, there's a potential that it's going to be a unique group of runners or a unique situation where, New, you have either a population that's enriched with new runners or people who had not been running as much but now have increased their volume. So how do you see that as, one, potentially affecting the way that you had entered the study 
planning to interpret data versus how you might need to interpret the data now that there's potential change in your study population? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And that's really been something I've been thinking about too with um, other ways that we can start to collect data. So I've been kind of toying with the idea of doing a survey, just looking at running behaviors, running attitudes, um, and kind of how it's affected injury patterns um, and motivation to actually um, do their kind of workouts and, and what those barriers kind of look like. So I think it is going to be something really important to at least acknowledge as potentially a limitation or a consideration for some of the subjects that we're getting and some of the data that we're collecting, just knowing that potentially these are a lot of novice runners that are just getting into it. And maybe there was a lot of other external factors kind of feeding into the, that injury model. Um, so I think it is something that really all researchers should consider with kind of injury data, especially when we're thinking about team sports, deconditioning, uh, and then people getting right back into sport once it's all lifts. I think that there's just so many other external environmental factors that we really need to be cognizant of as researchers um, with the data that we're collecting. So being really transparent in our reporting um, and considering potentially collecting some other covariates for our analyses, like years of experience with with running, for example, that's just what I'm my kind of comfort zone. So I'll keep circling back to that. But um, yeah, just taking into account some of those other factors would be important. Have you thought about how um, about directions that might be possible for disseminating the information quicker than our traditional peer review journal process or ways to try and expedite that? Because you may be capturing unique data that could also inform if there is another wave how people could return to running or engage in running during that wave. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and I also know that there's kind of a, a little bit of a hold on the review process for a lot of journals with all of this going on. I think platforms um, kind of similar to this or doing, doing webinars would be really helpful for kind of getting the information out there um, or finding some sort of other online ways to disseminate the information would be helpful. Um, but yeah, it becomes difficult because we kind of really rely on that peer review process to get kind of that data out there. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure on the best way, but hopefully doing more platforms like this and, and getting the information out as soon as possible would be nice. I think with your data set too, because you said you, you already collected some data. So, you know, comparing your, your existing data to then when you collect after, you know, if you kind of do a, a sub-analysis on those two different groups to see if it is different, right? Because post-COVID-19, you know, if, uh, if this was a major kind of factor in, in the data that you're getting, so. Yeah, definitely. And I even, you know, suggested in our last talk about, I think journals need to, or authors, when they submit the journals, need to have some kind of disclosure statement that some of this data was collected pre-COVID-19 with some post, just so the reviewer knows and the reader knows that, you know, this was going on in the midst of, you know, the pool of data that we have, you know, I think it's an important thing because um, concussion for your stuff, right? Like you know, mental health, you know, concerns big time right now. Mm -hmm. We know how much of a role that plays in concussions. So, you know, considering all this, you know, maybe doing like a stress or anxiety scale on, on subjects could be a, a useful thing, yeah. Danielle, could you expand a little bit more too on how you think the pandemic, you know, if this does get stretched out a little bit longer, could affect the methods of delivering interventions like what you're testing 
Um, you had mentioned telemedicine kind of earlier, but maybe there's also some other directions. Yeah. Um, you know, I just, I just think that our world is going to change. You know, I, I know it's changed in the short term, but I just, uh, I think it's going to be a long-term change that we try to think of. Um, you know, Stephen mentioned the IRB procedures of getting close to people and being in contact with people and, uh, fearful of that, but, um, It'll be interesting because some of the rehab tools that we're using um, might not be as easily transferred to telemedicine um, because we do use some specific equipment that would need to get out to them. Uh, So reworking the framework of that, of feedback, and how do you have a patient give themselves feedback, uh, you know, without having the the tools that we've been been trying to work with here. So, um, but even, you know, the one-on-one type of patient care or even, you know, with the athletic training rooms, I go back to my time as an athletic trainer, just, I, I don't know, it'll be very interesting to see. I, I can't quite uh, picture it, but I know it's going to look, look different, so. I think the, the application of it after you get your results, right, so if you find it being successful, um, implementing in the clinical practice may have a better carryover to translational me- or uh, telemedicine, but I think doing these studies gives is is hard because we want to be objective, right? And we want to have specific measurement tools. So I think that's the big kind of obstruction from a research standpoint. But applying it to the clinical setting, I think you know may be a little bit easier then. But we have to get these this data and these results first, you know, and that's probably the the tough part of it. I think something else too that I've been um, just always grappling with from my transition from a clinician to a researcher and the idea of in research we rely on questionnaires and just the standard you know evidence-based questionnaire um, to get information about anxiety or mental health or anything like that Um, but having just that qualitative analysis portion of just asking your subjects how do you feel? How has this impacted you? Do you, are you motivated? Are you anything like that? Um, and getting their actual responses. Um, cause you know, I think individual people are going to have different responses from this. You know, personally, I don't know any family members that are out of work or in very dire situations or anyone that's sick. Um, I still have my job, you know, I'm still working from home. I'm very blessed in that sense. And so it's going to be very different for someone who has family members that are ill or themselves have lost their jobs. So I think looking at it in that environmental, but, you know, seeing the individual aspect of it. And I think from a research side, we always lose that when we combine our data sets, you know? Um, So having that individualistic um, and then asking them, how do you think you would have responded to uh, telemedicine or taking time off or this rehabilitation method or something like that? So It'll be interesting to see if a lot of people start to add in uh, that qualitative kind of component just to see what their response is. Um, And then that'll give us some idea if their, you know, attrition or their um, willingness to participate is what's influencing it. Or, you know, from my point of view, I always lose participants and they're so hard to get on the first place. So, you know, kind of comparing these numbers, I don't know if that's really going to be a COVID problem or just a, CAI problem. (laughs) Are there other um, kind of short-term things that are turning over in your mind as you think about your research projects and your research lines? 
Yeah, so one thing that is somewhat concerning is the economy unstable at this point and how that affects public universities um, and the job uh, job process after this or even opportunities. So um, it's already a bit challenging to get into academia, especially high-level research institutes, but throwing on uh, hiring freezes or uh, reduced spending in departments, that can be a huge challenge. Even if you get the job, you might have a smaller startup, which can impact your research and getting started. So I think there's going to be a lot of financial challenges um, in addition to maybe our cohort, like us in the same kind of year. Um, we all might be kind of pushed back a year to make sure the project is, success is successful. But that means we're kind of a, there's kind of a double whammy, two waves of the same cohort coming out trying to find jobs when things recover. So, um, yeah, I guess the short word is jobs and security with that is going to be the challenge, I think. I think now is probably a good time for you guys to, you know, if you haven't in the past, considering postdocs, um, because there may be some type of stimulus package to the NIH as well. And with that increase in funding, usually supplies postdoc funding, right? So, you know, there's that potential, um, you know, to do that. And, and if universities are unstable from hiring perspective, I know Temple right now, um, no faculty hiring freezes, but there is administrative freezes. Um, and we don't know if that's going to change or not. I, mean, I read a couple articles about the, the hit that universities are taking is tremendous. Yeah, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars lost uh, throughout this process. So, but yeah, I think you guys are thinking along the right lines. Of, you know, it is something to consider. It's a little, you know, worrisome. Um, but having that kind of plan B potentially of, of doing a postdoc, um, and if research is really kind of your focus and where you want to go, uh, I highly recommend the postdoc. I did it, and it just it sets you up for a new skill set. Um, a new area of kind of technical expertise. And it gets you thinking differently because literally your 100% of your time is devoted to research and thinking. Um, and it gives you that time. Like you said, you guys might have a challenge of getting some good data to lead into being independent researchers. And it gives you that little window of, well, now you could use your postdoc to do that. Yeah, so definitely options to kind of think about and not to kind of throw out uh, and, and just try to look for that job. So thinking long-term, what um, are your views on how the pandemic is going to shape sports medicine research, one, potentially from the careers of the people who are informing the evidence, but also potentially the overarching impact of the pandemic on research over the next 5, 10, 15 years? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, it's hard for us to even think about, I think, uh, short-term impact we're thinking about all these potential negatives but uh, i think there's silver linings to all of it um i think we're going to get some older data out there to be into the world which is a good thing i think a lot of us have found different personal values with our family lives which is also probably a benefit especially the sports medicine mindset uh, thinking athletic trainers or just the head athletic trainers who usually work 60 70 hours a week this might put a shift in mindset and practice a bit to that better work-life balance, and then maybe we all don't need to be in that building at the same exact time when there's four or five people in there. So uh, thinking outside research, that could be an impact. Something I've been thinking about a lot um, is kind of injury epidemiology and what that's really going to look like. I think it's going to change a lot <laughs> over the next few years, and I think that that's going to be really something 
interesting to kind of look at and take into account with all the changes in sport participation, um, kind of activity levels of individuals. I was even thinking just kind of offhand about the Olympic trials and what's going to happen with that and detraining of those athletes and then potentially having to requalify and, and everything like that. So I think that there's going to be a lot of different approaches to sports medicine research that can be taken. Um, kind of on a more positive note, I think it's going to create a lot more resiliency in researchers and really be able to adapt to these kind of roadblocks and changes. I think as researchers, that's what we do kind of with our work anyway. So I think being a little bit more creative about combining some of the qualitative quantitative approaches, um, doing maybe more meta-analyses on kind of data sets that are, or data that's already out there, um, and just kind of thinking through different ways to adapt our research lines. I think that's going to be what's coming up. Yeah, I, uh, I think, uh, I think the epidemiology, like Alex brought up, is going to be the really interesting. Um, you know, a lot of folks that track college sports or high, high school sports kind of, um, you know, preseason and prospective data and collecting that, but um, seeing how, if, if sports do resume in the fall, you know, how is this prolonged rest period? You know, some athletes are probably, but uh, still trying to work out and stay healthy and active. But uh, I, <laughs> I know that without the direct influence of coaches and strength coaches and teammates pushing them to the gym and pushing them to work out, it's probably going to um, change their uh, endurance and their adaptability a little bit. So when they do come back in the fall, are injuries going to go up because they're detrained or are they going to kind of decline because they're rested? You know, so you're going to kind of have this uh, conundrum of what's going to happen with these athletes if they do return in the fall. Um, and if they don't, you know, for sports medicine, kind of thinking outside the box, well, maybe athletes can't be our only focus and we need to kind of broaden uh, our horizons a little bit if you know sports change just futuristically yeah i think in the overuse world um i do a lot of baseball stuff it's going to be really interesting i think because we talk about you know the professional season is 162 games um it's crazy you know so we always have this thing of like, well, we should reduce the season and then that would reduce these, you know, UCL injuries and shoulder injuries. Well, we are potentially have have a window of time where we can see if that's going to work or not. You know, I think the problem is just what Danielle said is that, you know, well, if these these athletes are really untrained going in and now you just start the season and not have a kind of a secondary spring training or something. Um, they they have to build up that workload, and if you didn't if you didn't allow time for that, then yeah, you're gonna have a burst of injuries right away. Yeah, you know? um, but it's a it's kind of an interesting thing, and it, it sets up a situation that you're forced to kind of look at this and kind of long term over that season that is reduced. Do you see a reduction in injuries per? Um, sorry, I got this printer just started going. <laughs> uh, did you see a reduction in injuries kind of? per exposure and if you did okay well we have something here you know where you would never be able to do that in baseball right you could never uh, set up that situation at any level so this kind of gives you the ability to do that i think which will be interesting over time but also with that epidemiology point of points that both of you are bringing up um 
it kind of reminds me that it's probably a time for us in the sports medicine community to reflect a little bit about how the pandemic is being handled, how it could ideally be handled, how it is being handled in different models around the world. And I think one thing we've seen in each of the different approaches that have been used around the world is that idea of be prepared kind of for the worst case scenario. Like that is part of the goal of flattening the curve is to try to avoid being getting beyond capacity. Um, and that means potentially in sports medicine of, you know, if we think that there's even a remote chance of increased risk of injury in the fall when we return, then what are all the steps we can take to potentially reduce that risk? And so maybe this is a great time for, you know, as we start planning for fall semesters to be also encouraging clinicians and coaches and parents to think about those prevention programs that, you know, we keep seeing over and over again, for example, on the website, and you guys have written some of the posts for those on just the effectiveness of these injury prevention programs. Some of them have been shown to reduce lower extremity injury. Steve, I think we had that one pitching or throwing um, prevention program. I think we've seen some evidence from some of the injury prevention programs that it also reduces potentially concussion um, as well. So it makes you kind of wonder if, you know, we kind of need to adopt that framework as we approach that fall season of, you know, let's learn from how the rest of the healthcare profession and public health is trying to tackle this pandemic to address potentially a surge in injuries that could overwhelm our um, sports medicine clinics. That's a great point. And I think that's also a nice way that you can pitch that to coaches and the parents. Um, if you can put it in that kind of framework about this is what we're trying to do to prevent this many number of injuries. This is how many um, student athletes we would need to treat to see this much of a benefit, then potentially we could get more buy-in, especially if we're framing in something that's familiar to them. So that's, yeah, I think that's a really good idea. Yeah, maybe this uh, <clears throat> this pandemic here will enlighten coaches and parents and you know, other clinicians or strength and conditioning coaches um, to adopt those procedures and to understand the return to play after so long of, of being away. Um, maybe now is our time to get in there with these prevention programs and hopefully they start to buy in for the future um, seasons and understand the true importance of them going forward. Um, so as we start to approach the end here, you know, we always typically have a take-home message that we pair with each post. Um, so as you're looking at the pandemic from the point of view of your dissertations and your future careers, um, what do you kind of see as your take-home message either for um, an audience of uh, fellow students, maybe people that are just starting to think about doing their doctoral research, or alternatively, what is your take-home message kind of for the clinicians out there? Yeah, I think it's it's pretty easy to be kind of down on ourselves or not be very motivated to get anything done. But I think we can use this time really wisely to prepare ourselves for kind of the future and what our research line will look like, what our work can look like. So I think using this time wisely, reading as much as we can about um, kind of current research that's coming out, um, doing as much writing as we can, and really taking time on our data sets. I think it, it's somewhat nice in a way because um, there's this kind of publisher parish kind of uh, idea out there, but now we have time to really sit on our data and really think through it and, and be a little bit more thoughtful with our approaches to our research. So I think using this time in that way can be really beneficial from not only a student perspective, but maybe faculty and other researchers as well. 
Yeah, I think a challenge with it is that um, we're kind of in a privileged set where we don't have, um, we're taking care of family members, we don't have children to take care of. Um, there's a lot less life responsibilities on us, so it's a nice case for us. It's the silver lining of it for us. Um, and if you're an incoming student and you're thinking about, well, I have these other situations going on, I might not be ready for it, this continues on, um, there's always going to be challenges with it. I think making sure you're in the right place to start is a good point but you're also surrounded by tons of individuals in your labs and cohorts, faculty and so on, who will support you as you go through these. So um, don't let things in personal life take over and control your life decisions that you've actually been passionate about beforehand. I think the biggest take home is just uh, being nice to yourself right now. And, <laughs> you know, uh, just take it day by day, take it hour by hour, if that's what you need to do. Um, but, you know, to just going off of Alex and Landon's point of, you know, you do have this huge network of people that you've built and that you, if you're in it, um, you know the network that you have and the support system that you have. If you're thinking about starting, I hope you're reading from this that there is a support system. I mean, I'm friends with Landon and Alex and we've never been to the same university, you know, so um, I think be nice to yourself. Know that we're all in this together. We're a community uh, and we'll get on the other side of it. And don't forget that Sir Isaac Newton invented calculus during the plague pandemic. So you guys better get to work. <laughs> I'm waiting on my, my brilliance. <laughs> I'm waiting on my uh, retirement idea. You didn't have Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Alex, Landon, and Danielle for taking the time today to chat with us kind of about your perspective on where things are. Uh, we definitely appreciate the time that you take to participate in this podcast, as well as some of the webinars you've posted and the content that you've put onto the website through your posts. I think having your insights onto the website are really helpful. Uh, especially in your areas of expertise. So we appreciate that. Um, thanks for taking the time today and stay well. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks, thanks. guys. Appreciate thanks, it. guys. If you're an athletic trainer who's looking for evidence-based practice CEUs, then please check out our six online evidence-based practice CEU courses available through Human Kinetics website. We'll have links to our courses on our website and in our show notes. Remember, you can always follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. We'll be back next week with more sports medicine research. Until then, stay well.